Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams For instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was far more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much. The wheel, New York, wars and so on. Whilst all the dolphins had ever done was mock about in the water, having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins had always believed that they were far more intelligent than men. For precisely the same reasons. Hey, this is Ali Ruskash and welcome to the AR Podcast. This is the AR Podcast. What is space? Do we know it all? Well, that's impossible to answer because the universe is expanding by the second and our understanding of it also expanding. It's crazy to think about how small we are in this amazing world we have passing us by. In the first episode of the documentary Cosmos, Neil deGrasse Tyson presents us with mind-boggling information on where we are and our existence in the universe. He says, Many of us suspect that all of this, all the worlds, stars, galaxies, and clusters in our observable universe is but one tiny bubble in an infinite ocean of other universes. A multiverse. Yes, our understanding of the universe is only expanding by the second, and the only thing we can do is lay down, look up, and try to figure out what's happening in the night sky. Babak Hamin Tafishi is an explorer of the night sky, and one of the most interesting people I've had the pleasure of conversing with. The thing is, we go a little bit back <laughs> to, to the time that I think I was like 13, 14 years old maybe, that I would attend your classes. And uh, you would teach us the basics of, uh, like, you know, astronomy and the sky and the night sky. And your classes were really, really amazing just, just, to, just to be a part of. And uh, it, it was crazy um, to know because, like, you know, after, after we finished our classes and I started to grow up a little bit, I, I understood that w- what a gem you are. And, oh, and it was, <laughs> but, but the thought of meeting you was always far-fetched and uh, you were always uh, in so many different places. Uh, and I didn't, I, I couldn't really track you down. I didn't know where you were. <laughs> right. Uh, it's an honor to sit in front of you today yeah. and to talk to you, basically. Can I go back to those classes just a little bit? I just want to say something that uh, you took us outside of Tehran for an exam, and uh, it was it was a test because you wanted to know like you know how everybody was doing. So it, the the the, uh, the trip was outstanding it was it was so fascinating to sit down and stargaze with you and you would talk about the stars and everything and then you would point out you you would take out this pointer it was there was a laser pointer i think it was like you know would travel like you know mm-hmm. tens and hundred millimeters or something mm-hmm. i have no idea and you would point to a star and you would say what's the name of this star like you know you had some you know, questions like that and that was really really hard to <laughs> to answer, but but it was it was pretty fascinating. I always go back to that. So I started uh, teaching when I was eighteen, in fact. So I was pretty young when I started teaching in a northern Tehran observatory called Zafarania. Yeah. That's where you exactly. were yes. yeah. uh, practicing. Yeah, 
and that observatory still exists. In fact, uh, in a few days, we're going to gather together with the old students, and I hope you come as well. That's amazing. I would definitely. So um, I continued teaching to the day I left Iran, which was in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that time, I had probably a few thousand uh, students, uh, both at these uh, at the observatory, the Nujo magazine, and then uh, Night Sky Institute, where we are sitting now. Um, Teaching was fun because it was part of sharing the passion to the night sky, sharing the knowledge of astronomy. But more than that, it was amazing to see a change um, in somebody's lifestyle, a change in somebody's mentality to to the universe, to to their living habits. Um, And that happened to me. When I was 13, I borrowed a telescope from a neighbor. And that's little telescope changed my life with the first look to the moon. So I I strongly believe that um, such a simple experience can change somebody's life forever. I understand. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about the experience that you just said? Because that was one of my questions. That you borrowed the telescope from your neighbor and then your life changed. So telescope was not that frequently available in Tehran, in Iran at the time, because there was no company to import or produce them. Um, so lack of equipment made you even more thirsty to, yeah. <laughs> to look to the night sky. And as soon as I realized my neighbor, a boy at the same age of 13, had a telescope, I borrowed that. And um, looking at the moon was a plan because I had a book gifted during my birthday and there were a couple of detailed map of the moon i wonder uh, what kind of telescope is necessary to see these details in my mind it was the most um, giant the largest telescopes in the world but then this little two inch telescope which is like 70 millimeter in aperture revealed even more than that map mm-hmm. and i was sitting behind the eyepiece as as the earth was rotating, the moon was just gliding across the view. And it was almost felt like being in Apollo spacecraft looking out of the window, <laughs> just orbiting the moon before landing. Uh, so that experience I can still remember second by second. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the way you describe it, it just makes me want to borrow a telescope. And <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, you know, look at this. And that's something you can do in any major city. So that's why... Um, you know, I believe the night sky is a free laboratory to all nations and it's uh, available to everybody. Despite the light pollution, you can still see some of the brighter objects, even in cities. Uh, and that passion built in me uh, many other interests. For example, photography of the night sky, which is my career at the moment for the National Geographic. And mixing that with cultural and natural um, landscapes symbols of civilizations and bringing a new message to people. Uh, So all of these started with that night in the middle of Tehran on the roof of our apartment looking at the moon. Okay, Uh, and uh, that began your fascination about the night sky, right? Yes. Uh, Every time you look at the night sky, do you see something new? In fact, I've been questions about this very frequently on social media that you know, you're doing this for more than 25 years and it looks like a single theater up there. <laughs> but it's not, in fact. It's not a single movie. The night sky is very dynamic. If you spend enough time, if you know what you're looking at, 
So those of us who are um, kind of frequently observing um, stargazers uh, look for these dynamic events. So the celestial phenomena beyond uh, the fixed constellations and the Milky Way, which is still, you know, most magnificent you can imagine when you are outside of the cities away from light pollution. But the celestial phenomena includes a new comet. A great comet in the sky can be really spectacular and uh, could be meteor showers, solar eclipses, lunar eclipses, conjunctions of moon and planets. It could be a satellite passing by flaring in the sky. It could be atmospheric phenomena, which is very surprising and most often completely unexpected, could be aurora, borealis, or australis in the south, could be just simply air glow, natural emission of the earth atmosphere. In fact, this is one of the chapters of my new book, The World at Night, which was recently released, and the full chapter is just showcasing the rare phenomena that can change um, somebody's life or uh, can make a lifetime experience for people. And I would, you know, top that with uh, comet and solar eclipses. Mm, I see, okay. Uh, is that book available in Iran? Uh, I brought a number of, uh, some of the copies I brought myself. I have not found a way to import it to Iran at the moment, right. to transport and import it officially. Uh, none of the posts are working at the moment with, uh, with Iran in this regard. So I have asked the publisher, which is based in the UK, to find a way in future. But I brought about 20 of them, uh, mostly for friends and relatives, and they're all gone. But there is one of them I bring for you to have. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's right here. Thank you. Yeah. So that, uh, that book is a group work of the old, the um, Board at Night photographers. We are a group of 40 photographers in 20 countries. Mm -hmm. I started this project in 2007. It's called The World at Night or TWAN, T-W-A-N. And it just gradually uh, grew over the time. Uh, and currently we are um, focused on publications such as this book. We had another book 10 years ago, but it was never in English. So this is the first time we are reaching international market with, uh, with an English book, which is going to be in many other languages, to currently in four languages. Uh, the book has different chapters based on the messages of the nonprofit The World at Night uh, program. And one of them is One People, One Sky. This is an idea that formed in Iran when I was taking photos of the night sky together with my colleague Oshin Zakarian, who is also a member of the World at Night program. And we realized the night sky has a universal message. It's a unifying power that brings all the nations under one single roof. And under this roof, we can feel that we are just one people, we're one family of humanity. So that's why we are uh, continuing with the slogan of One People, One Sky, which is shared with the World at Night parent organization, Astronomers Without Borders. Mm -hmm. Another chapter is focused on astronomy side of these images. What is visible in the sky? What is the name of that star? And how far in future for example, Betelgeuse will shine before becoming a supernova. So a lot of information um, that is hidden in the images. Because when, you, when people look at these nightscape photos, some may realize the art 
power of it. Some may realize technical aspect of that, and some look for the science behind the image. So it's a merge of art and science in, in our photography. Another chapter is concentrated on light pollution. It's called the fragile beauty of darkness. And uh, it's a very timely topic to, to talk about, especially in developing countries where people are using more and more intense light and uh, LEDs in white and blue part of the spectrum is considered to be harmful to human body, um, changing our sleep cycle and considered to be extremely effective to insects and birds and many other nocturnal species. Uh, so this is a new knowledge, but quite established, and we can rely on that, that light pollution is changing our planet um, in, in a major way, that people were completely unaware of. So this was uh, one of the main parts of the book. I, I'm um, really um, happy to include it in the book. And the last part is about the last remaining dark sky reserves um, in, in the planet, on the planet, which includes dark sky parks and any other designated location for stargazing by International Dark Sky Association. I see. Okay. Um, thank you so much for the, for the explanation. Uh, I wrote down something, uh, and I want to read it out for you and the people who are listening. Um, do you know where this is from? Of course you do. I'm just reading this. Uh, his work reclaimed a night sky that most modern people have lost. Do you know where this is from? Oh, yes. This is from 2009, yeah. when I won um, the Leonard Nilsson Award, and I'm really honored to receive that. Um, unfortunately, uh, Leonard Nilsson passed away um, a couple of years ago, but he has been an inspiration for me and many other science photographers. Some of us are mainly doing research, but some like me are in the middle of art and science, in the middle of public and general community and science, a bridge between science and public. But regardless of that, we all share mm, the same approach that we like to bring science to people. And that year in 2009, uh, Leonard Nilsson Award Committee wrote that piece um, when they were giving me this award in uh, in Stockholm. I shared that award with another science photographer, Dr. Carolyn Porco, who, who was at the time the science um, imaging director of the Cassini spacecraft, which is a NASA spacecraft orbiting the sun, which was, you know, it, it worked for a very long time and brought out a new knowledge to the so to to our understanding of the solar system so i'm really happy to sh to share that award in our resume with carolyn pork and we are still in touch so leonard Nelson award at the time was the world's most important um, program for to celebrate science photography and it still continues every one or two years yeah. when you're looking down on this and you see all those names and then all of a sudden it's your name yeah, I was yeah. really happy to receive it, especially at the time I was still based in Iran. So I was not only an Iranian receiving it, but a resident of Iran too, with all the limitations and sanctions. So breaking all these borders and receiving an international 
award like that was really a milestone for me. Uh, the same as you felt uh, going through the list I saw Franz Lanting, photographers of National Geographic, known for wildlife photography worldwide, or David Malin, who who has been um, an inspiration and also a member of the World at Night program since the beginning, but he's known as the most accomplished astrophotographer ever. Uh, based in Australia, is now over 70 years, but um, working with giant telescopes in the past and now consulting to us uh, in how to approach public in the World at Night program. I see. Uh, you've been to uh, seven different continents. I was reading uh, one of your interviews, and uh, they asked you a question, and I'm, I'm going to repeat that question because it was really fascinating for me. Uh, they asked you, uh, since you've been to seven continents, and um, it's not you know, the kind of experience that a lot of people have on the planet. <laughs> so uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, like, you know, some of the difficulties that you faced going into different continents? Because I believe that um, you would definitely like, you know, go to a place which is completely out of the city because the, uh, you know, the light pollution and everything you know, surrounding it. And then you have to set up, uh, and then all of a sudden you're inside this wilderness and you're basically exposed to anything. There was a program to document solar eclipses between 1999 to 2009, 10 years, a collaboration with my colleague Siavaj Safarian, and he, um, he has been my very good friend since, um, since teenagehood. So I started chasing solar eclipses in 95 in Iran, and then another one came to the country in 99, so I was really inspired by solar eclipses, working at Nojo magazine at the time, uh, continued to the next one in Africa in 2001, and that was the first real adventure of my life in 2001 to Zambia. You know, I, I've been traveling in Iran as a teenager um, every week, you know, to some place, uh, backpacking and taking photographs uh, from remote villages like Alamut and any other places in the Alborz Mountains. And then as I grew up over 18 and 19, I started to travel all around the country because the passion to the night sky is combined with your interest to the nature. You need to go away from the cities. And as you travel around, you realize the importance of um, experience of trip itself. So it's not only stargazing it's it's a new experience you enjoy it and then you're thirsty for the next one so in 2001 i joined two of my friends gernat and pascal from germany who were traveling with their own car a big unimog all the way from germany to zambia in over That's six amazing. months documenting um cultures on the way to solar eclipse that was another mix of art and culture um science and culture and uh, I managed to get to them just in time before the eclipse in Zambia. But then I realized I'm in the middle of a real adventure <laughs> because these friends of mine are true adventurers. And you don't find many of them nowadays because most people are influencers and um, they are... Um, they have the appearance of explorer, but you know, there are not many places to explore in the hottest spots of tourism. But these people are true adventures. And it was a shock to me. At the same time, it was um, I learned a lot uh, in Zambia in 2001. You know, we were chased by elephants. We were <laughs> chased by lions, and 
uh, we met really remote villages where people never seen uh, a white skin. So that was really a shock to me. Uh, to see that there are such locations is still available, is still existing in, on our planet. And then in 2003, a new continent was destination, Antarctica. So Antarctica was never a plan for me because um, it was impossible to reach it from the budget of a young person in Iran. It looked impossible until a person here in Tehran, Hamid Khodashanas, expressed interest to do, uh, to do this trip and asked me to join uh, as the manager of the trip, the science manager of the trip. So we did it together on board uh, a Russian icebreaker, Dr. Captain Khlebnikov, on one month trip to Antarctica to see a solar eclipse, a total one. The first time human beings were experiencing a total solar eclipse in Antarctica. And I'm happy to, to mention that um, in two years, I will back to Antarctica on another eclipse. You know, every 18 years, solar eclipses are returning in something called the Saros cycle. Mm -hmm. And this Saros cycle bringing back the same eclipse to Antarctica in December 2021. And I'm invited to be a lecturer on board Quark Expedition uh, to Antarctica for the total solar eclipse. And I really look forward to return to Antarctica. Other continents um, came also along with solar eclipse chasing. For example, we went to Central and South America chasing a very unique hybrid eclipse, which is a mix of annular and total eclipse in 2006. And that trip took us to somewhere in the northern limit of Amazon. Um, very dense forest in Venezuela and where the Angel Falls is located, the world's tallest waterfall. And it was another major um, adventure. You know, traveling in Venezuela is adventure <laughs> anytime, anywhere. <laughs> and it's, of course, it's a country like no other with so many attractions, natural attractions and unique culture. But it's, it's not that safe to travel around. Um, uh, we, we went then to Panama or we visited some of the um, local tribes which immigrated some decades ago from Venezuela and Colombia to this dense uh, tropical forest, a rainforest in Panama, and they were practicing still their Native American culture almost naked around. So it was fun to visit that, but it was also very challenging to document this for uh, Iranian TV. Oh, I understand. Yeah, uh, I understand the limitations. So um, there must have been an experience that you must have had in one of the trips that you just waited. You just sat down. You said, "Okay, fine. This is the reason I'm doing this. Like, you know, this is exactly what I always wanted to see, and this is exactly what I always wanted to experience. It couldn't get any better than this. I want to know what that experience was." If, if it's very one. simple. Yeah, it was one and it repeated many times. And I still, each time it repeats, I still feel the same amount of excitement. It's very unique. Nowadays, more than two-thirds of human population can no longer see natural night sky due to light pollution. Most of us are living near or inside cities or near industrial areas or near streetlights. And that has caused something called 
sky glow. So sky glow is vanishing the natural night sky. Simply, you cannot see the Milky Way. You cannot see um, many stars as you see in a desert or a mountain far from city lights. Light pollution has caused this lack of natural night sky experience and people are seeking that. People are uh, looking for places to, to experience that. And the reason is when you're outside under natural night sky, you not only feel connected to night sky above you, you feel uniquely connected to the earth, to, to the motherland, to, to the nature around you. You go to places when nobody is there. You go to a national park, this place is filled with people in daytime. But at night, everybody has left that. You're alone under the night sky with nocturnal species making these sounds. Nobody here. You feel such an amazing connection to the universe that every second of it, I think it's an experience of lifetime. You look at this misty glow of light on the horizon rising above you. And in half an hour, you realize this is the Milky Way galaxy rising, and you feel you're on a single little planet uh, going through this ocean of stars over uh, cosmic time scale. But beyond that, um, it places you in a right scale, it gives you a scale that how small we are, but how important our civilization is because we are understanding the entire universe. We're trying to understand that. But at the same time, from the size scale, how small we are and um, how unnotable we could be. You know, it, it's, it has a contrast. On Absolutely. one side, you feel that you're so important that you can reveal the whole universe, you can understand the cosmic scale. And on the other side, you, you feel that you're just one grain of sand mm -hmm. between millions of other stars and planets. We have more than 100 billion stars in just in the Milky Way galaxy. And about half of them have probably solar systems, have their own systems, planets. So we have more planets than stars in, in the galaxy. And just the prob probability of having another life somewhere in the galaxy is quite high. Um, of course, we don't know if they are advanced or not. Most uh, common life would be basic bacteria. But still, you know, just thinking about that. Um, many of us are living in cities. And in the city, you are completely occupied by the city lifestyle. You don't see much of the night sky or daytime nature. Anyhow, it's uh, completely covered by buildings and cars and industries. So you don't have moments to think about all of this. And being under natural night sky, you, you gain that moment. You feel connection and you, you will continue with that experience in your life. I, I strongly believe such moments change people's mind. And you will feel that in your reaction to social, um, financial difficulties. So you do believe that we have life outside of our planet and we'll definitely, there will be time that we find it. It's definitely not a belief because it's science. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you have to get evidence. Yes. But I, I think it's highly probable that we have 
life outside of Earth, and it may be even in our own solar system, underneath the Martian soil. We have not explored that enough. You know, Mars looks completely arid, but what about 10, 20 meters under the ground? What about in the sinkholes, where life could be protected from the cosmic rays and there is still some water ice and time to time they will be melted by underground activity or volcanic activity in Mars. So what about Europa? Europe, Europa is a satellite of Jupiter and it's completely covered by ice but under that ice is water, an ocean of water and we are pretty sure about that. Mm -hmm. And having an ocean water warmed up by a central activity in the satellite, um, it gives you very high possibility of some kind of basic life. But the story of advanced intelligent life is totally different because intelligent life does not form easily. Uh, can I ask you a question? I don't know if this is relevant or not, but you did mention something about the bacteria, mm -hmm. and sort of a bacteria that could be living outside of the planet Earth. And um, theory of evolution would say, if we have something that is growing, for example, it's, it's at the very beginning of its cycle. Uh, in some few, maybe thousand years time, we will definitely see an evolution happening from that. So we will definitely see other species. Yeah, when you have form of life, it will, it will have an evolution. Yes, mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's a fact. Okay. But how far it goes, it depends how stable is the environment it has. Mm -hmm. If, if you're in a very stable condition, favorable condition for evolution, then it may reach uh, advanced and intelligent, yes. But most often in cosmic um, environment, you don't have a s stability. For example, given our own solar system, we always have impacts of asteroids and comets, and that can kill one species, let the ground open for another one. But it doesn't let you to become intelligent because, you know, each time it will make a major uh, change to the life cycle. But uh, we were lucky about that. You know, one of the major impacts of asteroids to, to planet Earth probably was responsible for um, the extinction of dinosaurs, mm -hmm. which allowed us to, to evolutionize. Are you a fan of movies? Yes. <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, astronomy and uh, how vast it is, basically, do you watch movies and say, this is not possible, and this <laughs> is just <laughs> this is just drama for people yes. who don't really understand astronomy? Yes. Um, I do believe that's, that's an actual real case, because you would show these movies uh, inside this place, and then like you know, the audience would have to sit down and watch the movie, and then you would analyze the movie and would tell us how probable it is for this to happen or not. So um, I would ask you, uh, what is your favorite movie? Well, yeah, that program was called the Space Cinema. We had a weekly um, presentation of a film, and the movie was a science fiction or kind of sometimes documentary on the space activities, and then we had somebody guest to talk about the science part of it, a guest to talk about the cinematographic aspect of the movie. It was really great. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's something that you don't find it in many countries, in fact, yeah, to yes. have space fans come together to, to watch this and discuss this. Uh, my favorite so far has been still, you know, The Odyssey 2001. And this has been 
a favor to many other space fans because it's it has a lot of facts, science facts. So you don't find um, many Hollywood aspects in it. You don't find uh, mainly graphics and action. It has a lot of philosophy that not only back in the 1960s, but even now people can communicate with it. Uh, it is still ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. Although in some part of it, you know, it's predicting 2001 to be a very bizarre age of new uh, lifestyle and space. But it, this didn't happen. You know, uh, we are in 2019, 2020 uh, at the moment. We are in 2020 and still we have not reached the lifestyle of Odyssey 2001. Mm -hmm. But some of these aspects had happened and it's quite fascinating to watch that. After that, um, some uh, other great movies came like Contact, mm -hmm. another really interesting philosophy. Uh, the way that we can communicate, um, not physically, but through just um, waves and signals. And the other one was recent, Interstellar. Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask you that. Okay. Yeah. Are there any facts in, in, yes. in the things that you're talking yes. about? Yes, Interstellar, Contact, and Odyssey were all good in science facts. Of course, they had something beyond that too, but it's within the science fiction accepted ideas. That's important. But when you look at a film like Gravity, you know, it's just filled with action without really almost zero <laughs> base in science. So, And then there are some films which are based on true stories like Apollo 13. Yeah. And this film... One of those movies that you showed in those exactly, films. And I still yeah. remember how much people reacted yeah. positively to this film, especially when the Apollo spacecraft and this giant Saturn rocket is lifting off from, from the planet. I was just looking at people, how much they were excited to see this on the biggest screen. And it's very well made and, of course, very well performed by Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, what's next for... Uh... You're full of surprises. <laughs> so, uh, I'm currently more and more involved with National Geographic for stories and I'm really focused on light pollution because I strongly believe that light pollution should be documented more, should be communicated with people more. Most people have not even heard of this term. When you talk about light pollution, they have a little bit of a smile because they think you're joking. <laughs> but this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, although we are very much concerned about plastic um, pollution, we are concerned about climate change uh, and um, air pollution and so on. But light pollution has been actively growing behind behind our um, eyesight because most people didn't realize that this is a thing. Of course, most people realize they no longer see the night sky as they were experienced that in their childhood, but that's not the major issue. Light pollution is not only concerning astronomers. It's the smallest part of it, in fact. It's very important, of course, we are not able to explore the night sky and make that connection as our ancestors are doing. But beyond that, it's affecting directly wildlife and people, um, quality of life. Because the white blue LEDs, when we are exposed to that nighttime near our sleep time, uh, we cannot go easily to deep sleep. 
because of that intense white-blue light. Our brain detects that white-blue as uh, a sign of blue sky and white clouds. So that means daytime. It decreases the amount of melatonin in the body mm -hmm. and activates our body. So therefore, the deep sleep comes very late or never. I'm talking about the REM phase, the rapid yeah. eye movement, which yeah. is very important for recharging the body and memory um, recording. And when you have this issue in long term, people doing shift work, for example, or people who have a white blue street light coming from their uh, bedroom window inside. So each night you're exposed to that. And over long term, you have major um, physical issues. And even two kinds of cancer is related to these kinds of artificial lights, not as the main contributor as one of them, breast cancer and prostate cancer. And this is not something a photographer like me is just guessing. It's an established science. Three years ago, American Medical Association officially announced that white blue LEDs, form of light pollution, is harmful to human body. And nowadays it's illegal in some of the cities in the U.S. to use uh, lights above 3,000 Kelvin in the streets. The Kelvin light, the Kelvin scale, gives us the color, the um, temperature of the light. If it's 4,000, 5,000, it's very white blue. 5,000 has a lot of blue. Then 3,000 is somewhere in the middle. It's the edge of safety, according to AMA. And under that, 2,700, 2,200, it's very comfortable for our eyes and for our um, long-term experience uh, through our ancestors and back in the history of human being because it has the temperature, 1800 has the color temperature of wood fire. I so I highly recommend people to use um, warmer LEDs in their, in their house, such as amber LEDs and any yellow one, uh, 3000 and less. Uh, the white blues are, are very useful in... Um, hospitals, in surgery rooms, in a dentist office. So they have their own use, but not in your bedroom, not in the bathroom. You don't want an intense bright white light in the bathroom when you're waking up in the middle of the night. You go there and you cannot go to sleep that easily. That varies person by person, but average it's affecting everyone. And you don't want that white blue light in your street lights because it's creating psycholo psychological reactions, uh, kind of intense feeling and it's creating more glare to the eyes especially for elderly people or those who have made lasik surgeries so it has major issues it makes also very dark shadows the white blue light you use in your headlights for example the new xenon light or led light in the car headlights they're very intense so you see everything illuminated perfectly but the shadows becomes peach black Wow. And that's against the safety, in fact. So this is what I'm concentrated on in my mm -hmm. photography, to document the beauty of the night sky and the contrast of the light pollution. And then using the power of art in these images, communicate the message of dark sky's importance and light pollution issues. Well, we, have, we did a number of documentaries in the past, but not at this current moment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the major one was for ZDF, German TV, and Arte in 2017. 
uh, still the cinematographic releases going around in different festivals. It was called Borderless Sky. It was a five-episode TV program where followed five Tuan photographers in each continent. Mine was in Chile, and it was about the darkest sky importance and light pollution impact, and also the messages of Tuan. So that was our most recent documentary. Okay, that's just fascinating to sit down and talk to you. You are, like, you know, if uh, there is a time machine, I'm pretty sure I'm going to need that. <laughs> and, uh, like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to my house, I'm editing this, and I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I ask that question? Or why did I even ask that question? So, um, yes, if uh, there was just another time, maybe, in another planet <laughs> that we could meet i would love to sit down and talk yeah i look to forward to that yeah. in in my next trip here or if you travel over there or we can catch up somewhere in another country on the planet <laughs> so yeah i highly recommend people who are listening this to have a look at our most recent article about light pollution national geographic website just easily google nat geo light pollution and you will find that or you can follow me on social media especially instagram many of my posts are related to dark, darkest sky importance and um the issue of light pollution globally i'm available there at sign bobak tefresh Thank you. Thank you so much. It's uh, And it was an honor to sit down and talk to you. It's still uh, just something that I'm thinking of. I'm dreaming right now to be sitting in front of you and talking to you. So thank you so much for the thank time. You. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thank you. One of the reasons I became interested in astronomy was Mr. Tafishi. And to sit down in the same room and talk about the subject we both love was an experience I will never forget. Eat is coming, and you might want to order some amazing cookies and cakes, right? If so, Odebej Pastry is the way to go. Try their deliciousness. You won't regret it. You can find them on Instagram at Odebej Pastry. This has been Ali Ruskash, the host of the AR Podcast. This was the AR Podcast. AR Podcast.